Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. And I'm Howard Weiss-Tisman. At the light, turn right onto Elm Street. So about every month, a different VPR reporter gets to work on Brave Little State. And for this episode, Howard, who is usually VPR's Southern Vermont reporter, is taking the wheel. The destination is on your left, 60 Washington Street. Arrived. So the question asker this month is a librarian. Hi. Are you Kate? Hi, Kate. Good to meet you. Kate works at the Vermont Historical Society in Barrie, and I, I yeah. drove up there to talk to her. Um, I pulled some things to, to show you. Uh-huh. Uh, Kate moved up to Vermont with her partner about three years ago. She came from New Haven, Connecticut, a few months before COVID hit. We'd come up to Vermont several years in a row on vacation and always just felt really at home and liked the scale of things. Needed a big change. Uh, at the time, and it's worked out really well. You know, when you move to a new place, one of the first things you do is uh, check out where you're going to buy your groceries. Kate started doing some research, and what she found kind of surprised her. I live in East Montpelier, and you know, it would be perfectly reasonable for me to shop at either the Hunger Mountain Food Co-op in Montpelier, the Adamant Co-op, or the Plainfield Co-op. And that's, you know, three food co-ops within 10, 15 minutes from my house. Three food co-ops within a short drive of her new place. It kind of blew her mind. Just the fact that there are so many kind of right in that area is surprising to me. Kate had never been a member of a food co-op before. You know, she'd heard about them and she shopped at one or two here or there. But she never lived in a place where it was an option, let alone three options. So then she got a notice from her new electric company. Remember, she just moved into her new house in Vermont, and her new electric company was... Washington Electric Co-op. And she was like, another co-op? What gives? Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism project. Here on the show, you ask the questions about Vermont, our region, and its people, and we find the answers together. Today's question is from Kate Phillips in East Montpelier. What is the history of co-ops in Vermont, and why have they been so successful here? To answer Kate's question, VPR reporter Howard Weiss-Tisman goes back to the early days of the so-called co-op movement. Well, it was quite a history of farmers doing for themselves. So it was a self-help program when it originally started. To learn why this model of ownership prospered in Vermont. When the profit motive is removed from an endeavor, it changes everything. And how people these days are forming new co-ops to address issues in their communities. In the morning we were celebrating, in the afternoon we were looking down a septic tank hole.
We have support from VPR sustaining members. Welcome. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. Hey, Howard. Hey, Josh. So because of the way this show works, you did not initially know what story you'd be working on because we choose episode topics in public voting rounds. But it turns out that Vermonters definitely voted for the right question for you specifically. That's right. Howard, do you have something to disclose? (laughs) So I am a former co-op manager. I worked at the Putney Co-op in the 90s. For about seven years, I was the general manager there for five years and the produce manager for about two years before that. Well, you know, as part of your reporting, you did visit the oldest food co-op in Vermont, which is in Adamant. Did it feel a little like crossing over into, you know, like enemy co-op territory? Oh, no, there there are no enemies in the co-op world. <laughs> okay. It's, it's all very cooperative, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and that's really, that's one of the uh, principles we'll get to is co-ops work together um, all the time. But it was really fun to go up to Adamant because the Putney Food Co-op is the second oldest food co-op in Vermont. The Putney Co-op started in 1941. And so the whole time I worked there, you know, we always said, we're the second oldest co-op in Vermont, and I hadn't been to Adamant, so doing this Brave Little State episode was a, a great um, excuse for me to go visit the store up there. Adamant Co-op is the oldest continuously operating food co-op in the country, actually. Um, it was started in 1935, and you know, back then it was a long haul down into Plainfield or Montpelier, so the folks up there, they, they pooled their money together and they opened up a storefront to sell food and hardware. And we're going to hear that a lot in this episode about how Vermonters started co-ops to make their lives better because no one else was going to do it for them. Today the Adamant Co-op is an old funky store with all the wood floors and the old coolers. Can I help you? There was a lot of talk that it might close through the years. Um, If you read histories about it, you'll kind of see there were different times when they were teetering on the edge of insolvency. But they always were able to to get some loans or to have a benefactor step up. And uh, they've been able to keep the doors open. 95 for these band-aids? You are really good at math. Today, the store is barely profitable, according to co-manager Andrea Sirota. But that doesn't mean the store is not successful. To some extent, we, the big we here at the co-op, we get to define what success means to us. And when the profit motive is removed from an endeavor, it changes everything. It changes how you feel. It changes what you're goals are. It changes how you go accomplishing those goals. On the day I visited, a local woman came in with a loaf of bread. She wanted to give out to the community to remember her brother who died recently. And I felt like baking for him. So I baked for the store. Yeah, and also when I was there, uh, a surprise check arrived in the mail from someone who visited in the summer 
and wanted to support the store. And a regular customer came by, uh, and he was happy to find cranberries. He said he couldn't find them anywhere else in Montpelier. Excuse me. Oh, someone is making cranberry sauce. Oh, yeah. We've got going in a few different things. So. And so another guy I ran into was Tristan Von Dunce. He was there with his family. Tristan lives in Marshfield. That's a few towns over. And he gets down into Montpelier pretty regularly. He's got options to shop, but he says he likes to come over to Adamant a few times a week. And he sometimes stops in just to say hi when he's got nothing he needs to buy. Yeah, that's one of those things that, like, uh, you know, sometimes people don't notice or appreciate until it's gone. Um, and so for, for people to, to um, appreciate and, and try to save something before it actually it disappears, I think is, is, uh, that's a big theme, you know, so that, you know, 10, 20 years from now, our daughter uh, will, will have these places to come back to. You know, Tristan's relationship to his co-op in Adaman is actually fairly typical in Vermont. I heard from people around the state in my reporting who shared similar sentiments. And people were also sharing those sentiments online. Someone commented on one of our posts on Reddit, who summed it up pretty nicely. They said, quote, I just want my money to go back into my local community instead of into some rich guy's pockets. Yeah, there's a lot of love for co-ops out there, you know, especially during the pandemic. Vermont co-ops really stepped up during COVID. They've been doing sidewalk pickups and limiting the number of people in the store. You know, a lot of people said that the past couple of years really made them appreciate having a co-op in their community. Howard, you also got quite a few personal invitations during your reporting as well. Isn't that right? Yeah, right. So when we announced the winner of this month's episode, we heard from a lot of co-ops out there. Um, We have 13 co-op stores here and Brave Little Steak got a lot of nice invitations from co-ops all across the state. Uh, But we couldn't (laughs) we couldn't fit them all in. So I I do want to ask you more about the history and kind of evolution of co-ops in the state. Um, But first, I need a little bit of uh, basic co-op 101. Co-op for dummies. Co-op for dummies. Co-op, yeah. Uh, Excuse you, but yeah, yes. (laughs) You know, when most people hear the word co-op, and and certainly when I hear the word co-op, they think of a food co-op. Um, but I know that co-ops are more than that now. Um, so for the basics, you know, what makes a co-op a co-op? What is the defining characteristic? Yeah, I think even our question asker, Kate, was surprised by how many types of co-ops there are. When I asked the question, I didn't realize how broad that word really is. So a cooperative is really a form of ownership. And it's a way for any business to um, describe how it's owned or to set it up. And a cooperative is owned by the members. There there are dairy co-ops, there are electric co-ops, there are artist co-ops, and credit unions are co-ops. Credit unions are owned by the members. So at a non-cooperative store, you're going to spend some money and that money is going to go out to the owners or if it's a a national chain, it's going to go out of state. Um, When you spend money in a food co-op, that money is going to stay right there. I do associate co-ops with a certain level of privilege. In my experience, they've seemed like pretty white spaces. Did you learn anything about this in your reporting? Yeah, this is definitely something that, you know, food co-ops have acknowledged. There was a study done a couple of years ago, and even a few co-ops in Vermont supported the study. 
And they were looking at that relationship between race and food co-ops and they found that economic disparity and racial segregation and cultural norms, among other things, have all contributed to co-ops becoming overwhelmingly white spaces, in spite of the fact that, you know, the very model of cooperatively owned business is supposed to be welcoming to everyone. Uh, we put a link up to that study in our show notes, and it's something that co-ops around the country are starting to deal with. All right, so let's dig into the history a little bit. How long has the idea of a co-op been around? Well, informally, it's been around a long time. You know, anytime a few farmers got together um, to pool their resources, kind of could be considered a co-op. But in the mid-1800s, when the Industrial Revolution was really raging in Europe, um, there were a lot of people concerned about working conditions and tradespeople and farmers were were kind of getting, um, you know, left out of all the business. So that's when the co-op movement formalized. The co-op movement, so to speak, is directly connected to these folks in 1844 in England. Um, they're called the Rochdale Pioneers, and they came up with the seven cooperative principles. And uh, I won't get into all of them here. We'll uh, put a link up in the story. But they were the ones that, you know, wrote, wrote down that co-ops are one member, one vote. Co-ops keep all of the profit within the co-op. And they um, spelled out exactly how co-ops should be set up. And really from there is where the whole idea spread um, all over the world. And so part of Kate's question was about the history of co-ops in Vermont specifically. And so how far back do we need to go to get to the first co-ops in Vermont? Yeah, so again, you know, informally, it seems like there were co-ops around in the 1800s, mostly um, among agricultural workers, farmers. There were these groups called protective unions. Um, they bought food cooperatively, and they provided insurance and pension plans to their members. And, you know, the protective union movement, it ultimately faded away. And after the Rochdale cooperative model made its way to America, agricultural co-ops opened up all over the country. And in Vermont, the earliest co-ops were dairy co-ops because the dairy industry was so big back in the early 1900s. It was critical for saving the dairy industry in terms of bringing better prices back to farmers. That's Roger Albee. He's a former secretary of agriculture. His family's been dairy farming in Vermont for a long time. And he likes to study the history of dairy here in Vermont. Without co-ops, the middlemen would have basically... Um, controlled so much of the pricing that many of the farmers wouldn't have been able to survive. The dairy co-ops formed so farmers could invest together in equipment and transportation, and it also gave them more bargaining power to negotiate prices with the big food companies that were buying the milk and butter. Well, it was quite a history of farmers doing for themselves. This is an old interview with Bob Davis from the Vermont Historical Society. Bob used to work at the Cabot Farmers Co-op. Each farmer had to cut so much cordwood to fire the furnace, the co-op. They had a water committee, which meant a group of farmers had to go up and clean out the springs, and they needed rebox and rebox the springs. And so it was a self-help program when it originally started.
So co-ops are still an important part of Vermont's dairy industry. Cabot cheese is made with co-op milk, and most of the state's organic dairy farmers are part of Organic Valley, which is a national cooperative. Roger Albee says whatever the industry looks like in 10 or even 50 years, co-ops will still be a part of it. Co-ops are a central part, I believe, of the landscape. And I think they can be a continuous central part of the landscape. But there needs to be some refocusing on the kind of products they develop. So there isn't any one model, but co-ops definitely are, are a key part of the ingredient. So let's switch gears and talk about other types of co-ops in Vermont. So when and why did electric co-ops take hold? So electric co-ops were starting really all over the country in the 30s, and it was a way to bring electricity into rural communities. The electric companies were real busy bringing electricity to cities, and Vermonters kind of have to do it on their own. And that co-op structure is a really good way to do that. And so Vermonters started electric co-ops to um, help bring this technology. January 6, 1946, turned the juice on, first time here. This is a recording of a guy named Winston Churchill. That's really his name. We checked it out. And he lived in Berlin. And when electric companies weren't there to build out the power grid, Vermonters went door to door to sign people up for the new co-ops. That summer, I was out in the old barn running the mowing machine second, and then somebody stopped out in the road, and I said, something I can do for you? Well, he said, uh, we've got electricity over far as Francis Poor, and we're thinking of coming right straight through. And said, you want electricity? And I said, you got something you want me to sign? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you want to know better? No, I said, all I want is electricity. And these electric co-ops are still around today. The Washington Electric Co-op and the Vermont Electric Co-op are both around. When I visited our question asker, Kate, in the Vermont Historical Society Library in Barrie, she pulled out all sorts of stuff from the collection. Well, this is... Governor Aiken setting the first electric pole for Washington Electric in East Montpelier, which is where I live. Kate found a long history of co-ops, some of which succeeded and many which have faded over time. There was the Cooperative Health Information Center of Vermont, the union cooperative store at the Socialist Labor Party building here in Barrie, the Mad River Glen Cooperative Ski Area. There was a Vermont Maple Co-op mentioned the Montpelier Co-op Freeze Locker, which I don't know what that means. Uh, but I just thought it was really interesting. You know, that and so what changed or what happened in the 60s and 70s? So the 60s and 70s, it's what they call the, the second wave of co-ops. When the Back to the Landers moved to Vermont, you know, there was literally no way to get natural food. I mean, you, we kind of take it for granted today that you can go into any supermarket and get, you know, three kinds of oat milk um, out of the dairy cooler. But 
Back in the day, it really, it was not available. You couldn't find brown rice. You couldn't find whole wheat flour. And so what a lot of these folks who were new to Vermont did is that they bought stuff in bulk. Truck dropped it off, sometimes in the back of a church or a school or a community center. And the folks just uh, divided the stuff up and sold it. A lot of our co-ops started just like that. Oh, uh, we got together and we went out and bought 50-pound bags of, uh, of grains and flour and things. It was, it was wonderful to buy food with your neighbors. This is Michael Wells, and he's been involved with food co-ops for a long time. I've been on the Putney Co-op board since 1991, I believe it was. And so that's 30 years So back in the day when these folks started these buying clubs, the members were expected to pitch in anywhere that was needed. And even when the buying clubs became co-ops, the board members would sometimes have to unload trucks or mop up a floor if a freezer broke. Michael says co-op boards have come a long way in the past 30 years. He says the boards have really become professional And these co-ops are big business. They do millions of dollars a year, and uh, the larger ones have, you know, 100 employees and more. Co-ops are in the the DNA of the state of Vermont. Um, You get together with your neighbors, and you do what what needs to be done. It just fits uh, the milieu and the uh, personality, if you will, of of the state of Vermont. It's one of these positive feedback loops where somebody who has experience with co-ops is more likely to want to start a co-op or join a co-op. So that's Noemi Gishbens. She's director of the Cooperative Development Institute. That's a nonprofit group that works with existing co-ops and helps new co-ops get development money. She says there's a thread that runs through states like Vermont where there's a history and it makes it easier to establish new co-ops. So they do tend to cluster. Um, it's it's people saying, oh, yeah, my grandfather was part of a co-op. You know, like it's like that kind of like it's not that weird or new or different. Noemi's right. Vermont frequently places in the top handful of states that have opened up new co-ops in the past 10 years, as well as the handful of states that support co-ops via legislation. And that history and support system are still inspiring people in this state to take on projects to better their immediate communities. When we come back, we take a closer look at one of those projects. You know, no one's out looking for a profit when we pay our rents. All our money goes right back into the park. This is Brave Little State. We'll be right back. Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. Welcome back to Brave Little State. I'm Josh Crane. Today, we're answering this question from Kate Phillips of East Montpelier. What is the history of co-ops in Vermont, and why have they been so successful here? VPR reporter Howard Weiss-Tisman is on the case, and he now takes us to a mobile home park that has adopted the co-op model of ownership to make sure people can remain in their homes. My name is Paul Nesky. Paul has spent most of his life in Lamoille County, Vermont. Went to school in High Park, 
college at Johnson, I must say, and Linden. I ended up in the insurance trade as a general insurance broker, and my office was in the neighboring community of Morrisville. I was there for 42 years and retired nine years ago. And when Paul retired, he and his wife found themselves a nice place to live in Hyde Park, in the Sterling View Mobile Home Park. This was not just a place to to have a smaller home or easier to take care of home. This was a community itself that had been thriving quite nicely uh, on its own merits. Paul told me that he formed a small group of residents soon after he moved in. To start thinking about buying the park, they didn't want a developer coming in and jacking up the rents or kicking the people off to build more costly housing. He didn't know too much about co-ops when he started, but when they got closer to financing the deal, local and regional housing groups suggested the co-op route. And then in 2021, after some COVID-related delays, the 200 or so residents of Sterling View became the owners of the park. And it's one of 14 housing cooperatives in Vermont. Nesky says they learned pretty quickly what it really means to own a property cooperatively. When there's a problem, like the very first day we own it, first day of ownership, one of the septic systems, there's 17 of them in the park, one of them failed. And it it took care of 16 or 17 homes. So (laughs) these people were without a system that was operating. And we had to take care of it. Yeah. (laughs) In the morning, we were celebrating. In the afternoon, we were looking down a septic tank hole. (laughs) I know more about septic tanks than I ever thought I needed to know. (laughs) That new voice you're hearing is Jan Kuhn. She's another one of the new co-op owners. And she says, you know, there's a real difference now living closely with neighbors and owning the place together. We're a moderate, we're supposed to be a moderately incomed park. So that's why we need to keep the rents down. And that's one reason we wanted to become a co-op. You know, no one's out looking for a profit when we pay our rents. All our money goes right back into the park. And so when we had to vote on our rent going up when we bought, it had to go up $48 a month, which for some people here in the park, that is a huge amount of money. And still, we only had three, maybe four no votes. And everybody else that was allowed to vote voted yes. They were willing to expend that extra money knowing that we were going to take care of each other and that we were going to become a cooperative and we didn't have to worry about an outsider coming in and buying the park and then not taking care of it. So that that meant a lot to us that we had so many people vote to uh, to increase their own rent. So do you hear what Jan said there? The folks at Sterling View were willing to pay a little more because they understood they would be taking care of each other. Just like those dairy farmers in the early 1900s, the families who invested in the electric cooperatives, and every food co-op member who bags up chocolate raisins or just supports their neighborhood co-op by shopping there. Vermont, you know, has this uh, zeitgeist of We do better when all of us do better. I'll give the last word to Michael Wells from the Putney Food Co-op. We help ourselves. There's small communities in Vermont. Get together. It doesn't matter what your your views are, what your background is. You help each other out. And this is uh, the culture of a co-op world.
Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Kate Phillips for the great question and for all the help tracking down documents and photos about co-op history. Also, a big thanks to the Vermont Historical Society for the great archival audio you heard and some photos, which you can find on our website. That's bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can sign up for the BLS newsletter, check out our archive, and vote on the question you want us to tackle next. This episode was reported by Howard Weiss-Tisman and produced and sound designed by me, Josh Crane. Editing and digital production by Angela Evansy and Myra Flynn. Ty Gibbons composed our theme music, other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Alex Burns, Phil Bannister, Matthew Kropp, Regina Thompson, and Elise Greaves. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. If you're a fan of the show, please make a gift at bravelittlestate.org donate. Or just tell your friends to listen. I'm Josh Crane. We'll be back soon with more people-powered Vermont journalism. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.